I want to take just a moment and, and just encourage you. I feel like God's given me a word. And I know that many of us, as we live this life, there seems to be, and I see it, I feel it. I know my kids have sensed it, and my kids have felt it. I know that I've felt it in my family. I know that I've felt it even in my position as a pastor, that there is a real pressure in our world and in our society to live a perfect life. A life that has no flaw, a life that has no imperfection, a life that shows no weakness. And we feel a real pressure as we interact with other believers and we show up to church. There's this pressure to show up and portray perfection. As we go to our job, we, we want to portray perfection. There's a real pressure in our society. I mean, every picture that you see has been polished and has been perfected and every flaw and imperfection has been removed. There's this thing called Photoshop and they take a picture of reality and they put it in Photoshop and they remove every bit of cellulite, they remove every wrinkle, they remove every hairy mole, they remove that spare tire that hangs around your waist and by the end of it, you look like a Greek god. Um, and, and I look at those pictures, and then I look in the mirror, and I'm like, what happened there, you know? That, that's, that's not a six-pack. It's, it's something way worse than, 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 than what I'm seeing. But yet everything is, is perfect. Everything is portrayed as perfection and every flaw and imperfection. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, you know, this is the, the picture of what it first looked like and, and what it looks like after they get done. And it's like, oh my gosh. And you took a werewolf and turned her into a beauty queen. It's, it's I don't know. Um, how did you get that out of that? I, you know, every commercial that you see has the perfect family and the perfect house and the perfect city with the perfect weather with the perfect dog and the perfect cat and the perfect kids and they look perfect and they talk perfect and they get along and they love each other and brothers and sisters are hugging and embracing and you look at that and you look at your family and think dear lord mine must be demonically possessed i don't know what's wrong you know my kids throw spaghetti at each other and they throw things at each other and they pull hair and they bite and and they yell and they get frustrated and there's so many things and it's this huge disconnect but yet they portray per perfection and it puts a pressure on us to live fake lives everything in our life is conditional we we live in a performance driven society that uh, every you know the engagement and the relationships are truly based on condition and how you perform and if you perform to a certain level then you'll get a certain level of relationship and significance and we're so afraid of letting people see the real us. We're really afraid of letting people see the imperfect us. And we struggle because Psalms 139 tells us that, you know, God sees everything and God knows everything. When we're here, he's there. When we're there, he's there. When we're up, he's there. When we're down, when we're doing good, when we're doing bad, God sees everything. And there's really only two people in the world that really know the real you. And that's you and God. You know the things about you that no one else knows, that your spouse doesn't know, that your kids don't know, that your friends don't know, that your parents don't know, and you're never going to tell them. You know, they, you, you know the things, the thoughts, and the mistakes, and the failures. And because you know you, and you struggle to love you, a lot of times we struggle to believe that the God that really knows us could really love us. And we relate to God 
sometimes the way we relate to the world around us, and we feel like we have to portray and pretend to be perfect and flawless, yet God loves us in our imperfection. God accepts us in our deficiencies. God embraces us in our dysfunction, and he loves us with an unconditional and an unfailing love. And it's so powerful when you begin to understand that. And I thought, you know, if I wanted to find perfection, I should be able to go to the scriptures and find perfection. And so I began to look and I began to search and I began to study. And recently I just, I read through the the entire um, Old Testament and I thought, you know what, I'm going to find perfection in there. I'm going to see. And so you start at the very beginning of the book in the first few pages and you see that God creates a perfect world out of nothing and creates this perfect planet with perfect trees and a perfect ocean and perfect waters and perfect climate and and there's just perfection and perfect animals. And there's just harmony and perfection everywhere. And you're thinking, okay, this is good. And then he creates a perfect man and a perfect woman and puts them in a perfect garden. And you're thinking, okay, this is great. This is a good start. There's, there's perfection here. But it's not just a few verses in that you see the stupidity of humanity. And there's imperfection even in the midst of perfection. And you're thinking, man, how could they screw that up? How could they mess that up? I mean, they had every advantage. They had an intimate relationship with God. They had the perfect environment, the perfect home, the perfect setting, the perfect seeming relationship. Yet even they were imperfect. And you're thinking, okay, maybe mom and dad screwed it up, but maybe they're kids, 2.0, the second version, the second edition. Maybe God made a, made a few mistakes in his original creation. Let's see, maybe he corrected some things in the second run. So, you know, let's, let's see what happens in their children. And you see Cain and you see Abel, and Abel's got a good start, and he's loving God, and he's worshiping God, and he's generous to God. But yet there's this dysfunction in Cain and their children commit and execute the first murder in, in, the, in, the, in the world. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are, what are we doing here? And, and you're thinking, this is not going well. Well, God, you got to fix things. You got to, you know, you messed up one of your human making machines. You got to retool something and, and redo some things. And so we go on and we see Noah and God's like, this is not going to work. We're just going to scrap everything. Noah, I'm starting over with you. Build a boat, build an ark, get all the animals, get your family, get anybody that'll get in there. And we're going to start over with you and your family. And you're thinking, okay, God's probably picked a pretty good guy called Noah to do this and a a great man of God. And Noah does some incredible things, but yet the minute the flood comes, the boat takes off after a few hundred days. I can't remember exactly how long it was. Finally, the water recedes, the boat hits land and, and to celebrate Noah gets drunk. He, he doesn't go to church and thank you, Jesus, for your, your mercy and grace. He, he just, he goes to the bar and just gets loaded. And I uh, think, what? 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 You're supposed to be the, the good start over. And there's imperfection. You, you read about a guy that's called the father of our faith, Abraham. Sounds like a good name for a good man that should portray perfection. And, and Abraham, in his relationship, he's on a journey. He's following God. God says, leave your father's country. I've got a great plan for you. You're, he gives him a promise, and there's purpose in his life. And, and take you and your family and, and go to a land that I'll show you. And it's such an incredible spiritual journey. Yet while Abraham is on this journey, they, they step into a foreign land, and the king sends word that he's going to come visit. And you're thinking, okay, this is, this is good. This is going to be a good interaction. But, but Abraham turns to his wife, who was evidently gorgeous, and said, hey, babe, you're gorgeous. This king's going to want to marry you. So instead of us telling him that we're married, let's lie and say you're my sister so that he won't kill me to get to you. 
And you would think, I know what my wife's response would have been. It would have been a cast iron skillet upside my head. Um, and uh, heck no. But Sarah's like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. And, and they do it. And it doesn't work out. It doesn't go well. There's the stuff. And, and they don't just do it once. They do it twice. And then a few, few chapters later, you see this, God's given them a promise to have a son, and you're thinking, okay, we're going to stand on faith. You know, we, yeah, we messed up in the, ba- in the past, but we, we got our course straight now. We're, we're connected to God. God's spoken to us. we got a promise, and we're believing. And I know there's a lot of difficulty going on, but God's going to bring this child through, through Abraham and Sarah. And, and, and Sarah gets the wise idea, hey, I can't have kids. Why don't you sleep with my, my helper, my, my servant, my, my maidservant, and we'll have a kid through her. And yeah, that wasn't a good idea either. That didn't go well because then when Abraham stupidly said, okay, that sounds good to me. Um, Sarah did, you know, sometimes when your wife tells you to do something, she doesn't mean actually go do it, okay? She's testing you. And it's like imperfection, imperfection, imperfection. And you read throughout the entire Old Testament and you can't find perfection. And I'm amazed at that. And it sometimes, you know, people read the Word of God and they feel bad about themselves. I read that and I feel really good about myself. <laughs> because I'm like, God, I know I messed up, but I never did anything that stupid. I, ne- I never did anything like that. There's, there's hope for me. And that's what I want us to take away because a lot of times we get so focused on our imperfection that we disqualify ourselves from being used by God. Yet look at the people God used because even in all the dysfunction that I just listed, and listen, there's a lot more messed up stuff in there if you'll actually read it. There's some crazy stuff that goes on in the Old Testament. And you're thinking, how did God choose these people? How did God use them? Yet those were the people that were called children of God, that were called men and women of God, that did incredible things on behalf of God. And we can never disqualify ourselves because of our imperfections, and we can never disqualify the people in our life because of their imperfections, because we're the people God wants to use to do some great things in the world. Amen? Amen. Yeah, and I tell you all of that just to give you a little bit of comfort that it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay not to have everything together. It's, not, it's okay to not always be right. It's okay that ever once in a while your tie is out of place or something goes wrong in your life. You don't have to be perfect. And we want to build a church that's built on real people, not fake people. People that are real, that are authentic. People that need a Savior, that need a relationship with Jesus. We, we want to build a church on, on real people because God uses real people, not fake people. And I want to just tell you that one of the enemy's greatest strategies is to convince you that you have to be perfect. He wants to convince you that you're the only one that deals with an issue. You're the only one that that's happened to their kids. You're the only one that's had that thought. You're the only one that struggled with that addiction. You're the only one that's ever made that mistake. You're the only one. And listen, if you were to be real and to tell the people in your life, to tell the people in your life group, to tell the people in your church, to tell the people that you work with, they're not going to accept you. They're not going to love you. They're not going to support you. They're not going to want to be around you. You're not going to belong. And because of your imperfection, you're undeserving of real, authentic, significant, God-centered relationships. And he wants to push us into this place of isolation by convincing us that we have to be perfect, knowing that we could never live up to that expectation. 
And the reason he wants us to do that, the reason he wants to isolate us, is because the enemy knows like God that there's a power in God-centered relationships. That in God-centered relationships, it's the place where it's the breeding ground for possibility. It's the place where potential is uncovered. It's the place where purpose is discovered. That relationships are the place where dreams are conceived. He knows the power of us stepping into significant relationships that are God-centered in our marriages. That's why he fights so hard to bring division in homes. He knows the power of parents having significant relationships with their children. He knows the power of us having significant relationships that are God-centered with people in our life, with people that we work with. And it's so powerful that he fights so hard against us to convince us that we're not worthy of those relationships, we're not deserving of that, those relationships, because he knows if he can keep us out of those relationships, the things that God, the potential that God wants to uncover, the purpose that God wants to help us discover, the dreams that he wants conceived in our hearts and in the hearts of the people around us, he knows that those won't happen if we isolate ourselves and keep ourselves from relationships. And today's big idea, the thing that I want you to walk away with is knowing this, is that it's not your perfection that's going to make your relationship stronger. It's not perfection, you being perfect, that's going to make your marriage stronger. It's not you being the perfect parent that always has the right answer, that always makes the right decision, that always responds the right way to your kids that's going to make your relationship and your family stronger. It's not you being perfect in your relationships with your friends at work and having every answer when they go through a crisis. It's not you being perfect that's going to make those relationships stronger. What will make your relationships stronger and healthier is you growing spiritually to a place of spiritual maturity where you can handle, you can process, and you can correctly respond to the imperfections in the people around you. Amen. That's what's going to make you healthy. That's what's going to make your relationships explode with potential and purpose and a place where dreams are conceived. And I want to take you to a a story in the Bible that shows us the devastation and the result of relationships that don't understand how to handle, process the imperfections of other people. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see one of my biblical heroes, a man by the name of David, King David. And many of us know him, many of us have read him, about him, and I love him because, again, we see the good, we see the godly, we see the amazing, but yet God pulls back the curtain and lets us see the ugly and the dysfunctional and the imperfect in his life. And we get to look in at a moment of definite imperfection, that there's some highs and some lows in the next few verses that we're going to read. And David was in a season as king where he had been working diligently to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to the nation of Israel. And you're saying, well, what's the Ark of the Covenant? For those of you that, that may not know. And, and in the in earlier days, God wanted desperately to live close to his people. He wanted to be close to us. He, he desperately wants to be involved in our life, in our everyday life. But because of the mistakes that we uh, listed earlier from Adam and Eve, there was a separation between us and God. And so God couldn't live in us. 
And so God, what God had his people do was build a box that was to be the container of his presence called the Ark of the Covenant. And he gave them very specific instructions and directions on dimensions. And he told them what to use to build it, what materials. He went into great, great details. There's just pages and pages and pages in the Old Testament of details about how to build this, about what to build it from. And then once it's built, how to, how to carry it, how to move it, where to position it, where to place it in the, in the community and in the city. And, and, and so it was a big deal, this Ark of the Covenant. And the nation of Israel carried it everywhere they went. When they went to the, the grocery store, they carried the Ark of the Covenant. When they went to Walmart, they carried the Ark of the Covenant. When they went into battle, they carried the Ark of the Covenant because they knew the need for God's presence wherever they went. And you see, the Ark of the Covenant is an Old Testament model type and shadow of what our lives are intended to be. That because of what Jesus did at the cross, God no longer has to live in a box. He gets to live on the inside of you and I. And we are the containers of God's presence. So when we go to Walmart and when we go to the supermarket and when we go to school and when we go to our jobs, the Ark of the Covenant, your life is walking into dark places. And when the presence of God enters dark places, light comes, hope comes, change comes to the atmosphere. Amen. And they carried it everywhere, but because of David's predecessor's stupidity, King Saul, and that's a whole nother study on, on his life and the things that he dealt with because of, he made some mistakes as a leader. The Ark of the Covenant was actually lost, was actually stolen by an enemy nation. Their enemies had taken the Ark of the Covenant, and for years they went without it. And so we pick up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and this is the day that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is being returned to the people of God. David had been working. He'd been strategizing. He'd been planning on how to got, get it back. And when he got it back, he was going to bring it back to the city. And he didn't follow the instructions that God set on how to, how to, how to transport the presence of God. And because of that, crazy things happened. You need to read it. You need to study it. It's an, it's an amazing story that I don't have time to go into detail. And so for a, for a short period of time, he hid it in somebody's house and, and was scared of the presence of God. But yet he found the courage. He said, okay, I know how to do this. I know the right way to do this. He put things in order. And finally the day came. All of the work that he had put in, all of the preparing, all of the overtime that he had put in had come to the moment of celebration. He, he called everybody in the nation and said, listen, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back. He created a Facebook event and invited all of his friends. He sent out emails throughout the entire kingdom. And everybody was invited to the celebration. And so the city was filled with people and they were lining the streets and they were ready to see the parade that David had put in place and all the planning that David had put in place to celebrate the re-entry of the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God. And there were musicians singing, they were sacrificing animals and doing all of the things that they had to do in those days to honor God in the way. Thank God for Jesus and the cross that we don't have to do what they did in the Old Testament. But they had everything going and celebrating and music and people were shouting. And the Bible says this in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 6. It says in chapter 6 verse 16, But as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michelle, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, 
looked out her window. She heard this ruckus. She heard this noise. She heard this celebration. She, for some reason, wasn't included in the planning and wasn't, wasn't a part of what was going on. She was at home and doing, but she heard this noise and she looked out her window. And what she saw was David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant, celebrating. He, his heart was exploding with joy and with gratitude, and he was worshiping God, not like we worship God on Sunday morning, like, thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. You're so faithful. Hallelujah. Amen. Please let this song be over, Father God. They've repeated that chorus so many times. Father, just let me be patient and not pass out while they go longer and longer and longer. But thank you, Jesus, for your goodness, and thank you for providing it. And if we get really moved by the Spirit, we'll, we'll get the, you know, the, the, the wave going on. And, and, but it says that David was leaping and was dancing and was spinning in such a way that clothes began to fly off. And it says that he danced down to his ephod, to his hanes, to his briefs, to his underwear. And, and it was intense. And I mean, his heart was so full of love for God and so full of gratitude that he didn't have an awareness of where he was, of who was. You ever have those moments where you get so lost in the presence of God that you just lose track of time. You lose track of who's around you and what's going on. And man, you're just, I've been in those places on, on a Sunday or in a service and I'm, man, I'm worshiping God and, and my eyes are closed and I'm intense and I turn around and I'm like facing the person right behind me. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, I just, I lost track of time. And, and space and David had fallen into that moment and he's just not aware he's just before God he's loving God but listen to what it says it says as she looked out what she saw was not what we saw she didn't see a man of God worshiping God she didn't see a man of God celebrating the return of the presence of God. She didn't see a man that had succeeded at work and was celebrating the raise or the promotion what she saw was her husband dancing naked in front of a bunch of women. And the Bible says this, she was filled with contempt for what he was doing. She was angry. She was upset. And she's taken so much heat from the body of Christ for thousands of years. How could she judge him? Look at how pure he is. Look at how pure his worship is. He was just being undignified. We sing songs about it. We celebrate David over it, and rightfully so. He worshiped God in such a way that, that I wish we as churches could grab a hold of. But listen, while her response was wrong and her response was imperfect, her heart was right and that she just loved her husband and she was jealous over her husband. What woman would not be jealous over her husband dancing naked in front of other women? If you're okay with that, come to marital counseling. We will pray for you and straighten you out. She was not okay with that. She wanted more than anything for her husband to be dignified and to be respected and to be successful in his job. And her heart sank, David, what are you doing? Why are you acting like this? She didn't maybe understand the context of the moment. Maybe she didn't see the Ark of the Covenant, but yet she saw her husband. And she's thinking, David, this is going to hurt you. This is not going to help you be successful. This is not going to help you in your job. This is not going to help you. God, I'm concerned. God, I, she's probably praying for David. Like, David, God, please show David. You know, change his ways. Change his heart. God, what, what's going on? Help me understand. She's, she's angry because she loves her husband. And because she has a pure love for her husband in her imperfection, she responds imperfectly. And the Bible says this, that 
It says in verse 20, when David returned home to bless his family, you know, man, it's been a good day at work. Man, we won, we succeeded, I got a raise, I got a promotion, things went well, that thing that had been bugging me for years, we, we beat that problem, we overcame that, we, you know, the numbers are great, whatever we needed, and David was excited, man, I'm going to go home, I'm going to play with my kids, we're going to get out and play a little catch, I'm going to hug them, I'm going to love them, I'm going to kiss my wife, Bad, dadgummit, we're going to Golden Corral tonight, okay, we're, we're going to celebrate, we're, uh, we're, we're going out to dinner. And we're going to, man, I'm going to bless my wife and my family. And he went home excited, lost in the moment, celebrating the goodness of God. And he gets to the front door and he jiggles that door handle. And yet there's a tension in the air. And there's dark clouds hovering over his house. And lightning strikes at his feet. And he's thinking, what is going on? And he opens the door to a wife that's arms crossed, tapping that foot, staring intently, like, when you go to sleep tonight, I'm going to cut your throat. <laughs> I'm going to claw your eyes out if you get any closer to me. And he's like, what? What did I do? What? what? What's going on? It's been a good day. The Ark of the Covenant's back. <clears throat> and listen to Michelle's response to David. Because you see, even in a pure act of worship, there was an imperfection in David. Maybe there's some real issues with him not being aware of where he was at and not being aware of the moment. His heart could have been pure. And so there's imperfections here on both sides. And I want you to just follow this for a few moments. So when David returned home to bless his home, his family, Michelle, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. It's either really good or really bad when your wife comes out to meet you. It's 50-50. <laughs> And he immediately figured out which one this was. Because the Bible says that she said in disgust, how distinguished was the king of Israel, shamelessly exposing himself to all the servant girls like vulgar people do. She exposes what she saw. She did not see a man of God worshiping his heavenly father, celebrating the return of the presence of God. She saw her husband shamelessly exposing himself. And the Bible says in verse 21 that David retorted, which means David responded stupidly. That's what the, if you look that up in the Hebrew, it says David responded stupidly. Not really, but that's what it means in this context. And you hopeful that David being a man of God, being as the Bible describes a man after God's own heart, that God would have prophetically spoken to him and, and fast forwarded him thousands of years into the future to see James chapter one, verse 19, to just say, David, just tap, the spirit of God just tapped David on the shoulder and say, David, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, but be quick to listen. But yet David in that moment did not have that inclination or that word from the spirit of God. And David got what we call emotionally hijacked. And he responded out of insecurity and out of defensiveness and out of anger. And he responded to the imperfection of his wife in an imperfect way. And we begin to see this spiral of imperfection, breeding imperfection, responding to immaturity, responding to immaturity. And we see here in just a few moments the effects of that and why it's so dangerous. Listen to David's retort. 
Well, let me tell you what I was doing. I was dancing before the Lord. But it, it, he didn't just do that. He didn't say, babe, 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 babe. Just, just the Ark of the Covenant is back. And I was just dancing before God. And babe, I got lost in the moment. And it was such a glorious moment. And I just, I didn't even know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. I just was so grateful for the goodness of God. And I was just celebrating. And I was, he didn't, that, that, that was not. He said, I, I was Dancing before the Lord, babe, by, let me remind you that the Lord I was dancing before chose me as leader, as man of God, as head of this house, and he chose me above your father. Mm, yeah, you, you feel the tension now. You've read over that, but you feel the tension now. And I think in the King James, that, that translation says, and the crappeth hitteth the fanneth. Um, it, and, and it's like, okay, David, you've made your point. Like, chill. He, God, appointed me to be leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrated. I was justified in what I did. I was right. I was perfect. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't make any mistakes today. I was pure in my heart. How dare you judge me? How dare you question me? How dare you threaten me in my position? You remember who I am, babe. You remember your place. Yes, you think that's something? I am willing to look even more foolish than this even humiliated in my own eyes. And I'm like, okay, okay, David, you've, you've dug a grave deep enough. Stop digging, okay? But, but no, he has to go just, you know, when you lose all, when you get emotionally hijacked, you lose all rational logic and thought. And there's a line that I've crossed before in, in my relationships to where I get mad and I don't say anything from that point on that's helpful, that's respectful, that's kind. I am out to cut you. I am out to win. I am out to get, I am in this thing now. And we, let's, let's go. And I lose all rational thought, which I believe is where David was at. And he said, and babe, you know, those servant girls you were talking about, they thought I was hot stuff. Woo, they like the way I dance, baby. You may be mad, but they liked it. And they want some more of it. That's, that's how bad this got. They think that I'm distinguished. And here's the danger. Here's the thing that I want to pull you to. Verse 23. So Michelle, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout the rest of her life. Man, I grew up hearing that story. And I grew up hearing that that was God's judgment on her for her judging her husband. That that was her punishment because how dare she hold contempt for a man of God. David was just worshiping God. God didn't do that to her. David did. The both of them in their relationship and in their dysfunction and in their immaturity and in their imperfection caused a relationship that God intended to produce life to be barren. And that's the danger when we don't learn how to respond, how to process, and how to handle the imperfections of other people. That's what happens when we don't learn that it's okay to be imperfect and to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? I didn't handle that right. Let me humble myself. 
That's what happens when we get into this spiral of imperfection, responding to imperfection and immaturity, responding to immaturity, is that the relationships that God intended to be the breeding ground of possibility, the places where potential is uncovered, the places where purpose is discovered, and the places where dreams are conceived, those breeding grounds of possibility become impotent, meaningless, powerless, just acquaintances that can't accomplish what God intended them to accomplish. And we need to recognize that, that we need to learn and grow to a place of spiritual maturity where we stop responding to people based on what they say, but we grow to the place where we look beyond what they say and we look to the heart in which they've said it. What if David would have stopped? What if David would have been slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to listen? And quick to listen simply means, help me understand. I, I, there's some intensity here. And instead of responding to justify my actions and my behavior, I want to understand why this has hurt you, why this has angered you. I want to get beyond what you're saying and get to the heart. There's something deep here. What can, what, what can I do to make this right? What did I do that was imperfect? What can I repent of? What can I apologize for? What, what can I do to make this right? Let me understand beyond what you're saying and get to the heart. Because if David would have taken the time to get beyond the immediate response of his wife, to get to the heart, you saw something different. You were simply concerned for me. How different would that conversation have gone? What if, what if Michelle would have taken a moment, instead of just attacking her husband as, she wa- as he walked through the door, if she would have said, babe, I saw something today that bothered me. I need to understand what happened. What if she would have been slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to listen? How different could that have relationship been? Could it have been a relationship that birthed potential? Could it have been a relationship that produced life? Could it have been a relationship that made a difference in the world? That's why we need to learn to respond correctly and with maturity to the imperfect relationships in our life. And I want you to know that, listen, nobody in your life is going to be perfect. Everybody's going to make a mistake. Everybody's going to let you down at some point. You're going to let people down. And if we only had friendships and relationships with perfect people, we might as well go dig a hole and bury ourselves in it because they're just, it's not going to happen. And we need to learn to process and handle because it's not our perfection that makes the relationships in our life strong and healthy. It's our ability to handle, process, and deal with the imperfections of others, to walk in relationship with grace and forgiveness, to walk in relationships with humility being able to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. To say, you know what, that hurt, but I forgive you. To get beyond the immediate responses and the immediate words. We are so responsive and so reactive. And the sad thing is, is that very few people have taken the spiritual disciplines to put enough of God in so that when they are reactive, what comes out of them is the love and grace and kindness of God. But we have so much of the world in us that what comes out of us when we immediately respond and react a lot of times is the fruit of the world, is anger and his division and is hurtful and is destructive instead of being what God intended us to be people that bring peace. The word says that blessed are the peacemakers. 
And we need a body of believers that are peacemakers. We have so much division and so much strife and so much turmoil in our world that we need a church of peacemakers that can stand up and know how to process the human imperfections, to understand that it's not flesh and blood that we're fighting against, but we're fighting against spiritual principalities in dark places, in high places, that our battles are spiritual, not physical. We need a mature body of believers that know how to process other imperfections because we know the power of relationships. We know that they're the breeding ground of possibility. And if we were to just take James 1, 19 and 20, understand this, my dear brothers, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry, because listen to this, human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Your angry response, your human response is not producing in your relationships the righteousness that God desires. We need to slow down. We need to slow down in moments and look beyond what's being said or what's being done and look to the heart. What if we were a church that like 1 Corinthians 13, we were loving and we were patient and kind. We weren't jealous or boastful or proud or rude. We didn't demand our own way. Michelle and David both were demanding their own way. They weren't patient with each other. They were rude to each other. They weren't kind to each other in that moment. And because they did the opposite of what love was, it caused them to be fruitless and barren. And I want to challenge you with a couple of things as we prepare to close. And the first one is I just want to challenge you to live a Psalms 139 kind of life where the psalmist prayed this, God, would you search me and know me? I'm not going to pretend to be perfect. I'm not going to pretend that I've got everything together. God, would you search me? I'm not going to be one of those people, like Matthew says, that's a hypocrite that judges everybody else because of the little imperfections in them when I've got a telephone pole sticking out of my eye. I'm going to deal with me first. I'm going to, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to convict me first. I'm going to be humble, and I'm going to admit that I'm not perfect. And I would challenge you to become a person that lives a Psalms 139 life that says, God, show me. And listen, God won't show you something that's wrong in your life without giving you the grace to fix it and grow you beyond it. And I just believe the simplicity there was to say, God, search me, know me, show me, and then grow me. Grow me beyond this dysfunction. Grow me beyond this limitation. Grow me beyond this limiting thought process or belief or self-perspective or self-image. And so we need to live that kind of life. The second thing is to pray and seek God to say, God, help me become a gracious person, a humble person, a mature person that's able to process the imperfections of others correctly, that I don't respond to their immediate action or word, but that I have the maturity to be slow to speak, to be slow to anger, but to be quick to listen, quick to seek to understand before I attempt to be understood. Love never gives up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. Love is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. I pray that we would be a church that would never quit on people, that we would never disqualify people. Maybe they've made mistakes, but we can't give up on them because God hasn't given up on them. Thank God people didn't give up on me. Thank, thank God that he didn't give up on me. And we need to be a church that learns how to process, deal with, and respond correctly to the imperfections of others. And the third one is you need relationships. You need to step in and be willing to 
open your heart to new relationships. And we're entering a season of life groups. And that's not just activity. That's not just another thing to put on your schedule. That's not just another thing to do. We're believing that that's an opportunity for you hopefully to develop a relationship with someone where you can be perfectly imperfect in their presence, that you can be the real you, that you can be a transparent you, that you can develop a friendship and a relationship with somebody where you can do what the Bible says, confess your sins, confess your flaws, confess your imperfections one to another, that you can share. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect, but the Bible says that in that significant relationship that you can pray for one another and healing can come, freedom can come, strength can come, and you need friendships. You need friendships because of going through things, even like our pastor's going through now, to where there's a battle that he's waging, and, and thank God that he's got people and friendships and relationships where he doesn't have to be this perfect pastor that nothing ever happens in my life, but he can be real and he can share his emotions and he can share the reality of what he's thinking and what he's going through and what they're dealing with. And he's got somebody to stand with him and to lift his arms. There's gonna be a time where you need someone to lift your arms. There's gonna be a time where someone in your life needs you to be the lifter of their arms and the lifter of their head and to be an encouragement. And we need those kind of relationships so that we can fight the fights of of life together and not alone. Amen. Amen. Relationships are the breeding ground of possibility and the enemy would keep you from relationships and he would do everything that he can to isolate you because he doesn't want the potential in you to be uncovered. He doesn't want the purpose in you to be discovered. He doesn't want the dreams of God that God's birthed in your heart to be conceived and developed and to come true. And he's doing everything that he can to stop you from being in a relationship with someone that can change your life and to keep you from being in a relationship where you can change their life. Listen, it's not your perfection that's going to make relationships stronger. It's your ability to deal with, handle, and process and respond correctly to the imperfections of others. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown us a picture of the dangers of not being able to handle graciously and maturely the imperfections of others. And God, I know that you want a church that's filled with significant relationships, that's producing life, that's producing significance, that's producing dreams and people that are realizing their potential so that they can make a difference in the world. And we know the enemy comes to steal our relationships. He comes to kill our relationships. He comes to destroy our relationships. He comes. Your word says that when a kingdom is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And the enemy comes to bring division. But God, I thank you that you're helping us find the place where where we can stand in agreement and we can stand in unity and we can stand in love, never giving up on one another. We honor you and we thank you for challenging us today to take the step of loving imperfect people and that those imperfect people will love us as we're imperfect, that we will never quit on each other, we will never give up on each other. And we are so grateful, we are so grateful today that you haven't given up on us. No matter how many times we quit on you, God, you will never quit on us. You pursue us with an unfailing love, an unconditional love. And we thank you that you never leave us and you never forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. And the entire church said, amen. amen.